Welcome to Faith Seeking Understanding. My name is John Green, and I'm your host. I'm glad you're with us today. Here we are the third week after the Epiphany, and we're looking at some interesting lessons, some lessons that I think have some things to say to us, at least in America right now. I think there's some things that we can learn from this. I think there's some things that we can take away and that we can apply in our own lives right now. It's an important time in America as we go through a transition in power in Washington, not just at the presidential level, but also at the Senate level. And it's an uneasy balance and an uneasy time for many people. There's a lot of celebration on one side, and there's a lot of devastation on the other side. People just horribly, not just disappointed, but devastated that their side lost. And so we're in a perilous, interesting time in America that's interesting only in the sense that that it's um, requires a lot of us as Christians, I believe, to think our way through this and to move through this season. There's Christians on both sides of this whole issue, and I think we need to be careful the way we communicate with one another and communicate about one another. And so I, I see a lot of intemperate stuff on both sides actually right now. Uh, on Facebook and other places. And so this is a good time, I think, to kind of review this. Um, we had a good week this week, not a whole lot of exciting things going on, I don't think. I can't remember anything particularly exciting that happened. Happy that I was able to get back and start working out again. It's been a long time, you know. I stopped going to the gym because you had to wear a mask to work out, and I just can't do that. Um, so we, I got some heavy-duty bands that a couple of guys that I follow on YouTube recommended and so I've been working out some at home and it feels good to get my body back into to working trim and, and to begin to to take care of the great gift that God gave me of a healthy body and so it's time to do that it's not spring yet um, but it's time here in winter to begin to to restore the body that I let lapse for a couple of months from November until just recently and so it, it, that has has been an encouraging thing to me I've had a lot of uplifting and wonderful conversation with people this week and it, so it's been a good week I think it's time for Sudan and I to get back out and start walking and get out in the woods again too it's it's time for that I love to walk in the winter time there's, there's a special beauty to the to the winter um, and that I enjoy and so kind of ready to do that so anyway, let's jump in and see what's going on and what we've got today. So as I said, we're the third Sunday after the Epiphany, and the, the psalm today is a portion of Psalm 62. It's verses 6 to 14. For God alone, my soul in silence waits. Truly my hope is in Him. Man, if we need to remember anything in America right now, it's that last part. Truly my hope is in Him. He is alone is my rock and my salvation, my stronghold, so that I shall not be saved shaken we can't put our trust in rulers we can't we i think we're guilty lately of um too much one side or the other in god is my safety and my honor god is my strong rock and refuge put your trust in him always O people pour out your hearts before him for god is our refuge those of high degree are but a fleeting breath even those of low estate cannot be trusted so saying you know it's it's neither um rich people nor poor people don't have what god has and they can't be trusted in that way and i think sometimes we do actually put people on pedestals and we put them on pedestals one way or another that that we think there's a nobility in wealth and we think there's a nobility in poverty and neither nor is the answer 
On the scales, they're lighter than a breath, all of them together. Put no trust in extortion, in robbery, take no empty pride. Well, who in the world would do that? Well, there's a truth there, though, that there is that. Though wealth increase, set not your heart upon it. God has spoken once, twice have I heard it. The power belongs to God. Steadfast love is yours, O Lord, for you repay everyone according to his deeds. Well, that that hurts. <laughs> I don't really want to be repaid according to my deeds, so I, I can be particularly thankful if, I, if I'm in that place to say, you know, I, I really need to be more and more thankful for the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross because I don't want to be repaid according to my deeds because they're not all that great. And if I'm reminded of those things, then I'm without hope. So what does that have to do with any of the things that are going to come after that? And sometimes it's hard to see that, but, but what it is is that all of this is intended to drive us back to Him. And so what we're going to talk about today has to do with call and response. The call of God one way or another on our lives, and what is our response to it? And so I want to start with the best example of call and response, and that's the gospel today, and that's Mark 1, 14 to 20. After John the Baptist was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Now, John had preached a very similar message. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe. And so John led the people out to the Jordan for baptism, for repentance. But what does Jesus mean when he finishes this sentence with, and believe in the gospel? Gospel is just simply a word that means good news. So what's the good news? John's been arrested. What is the gospel at this time that Jesus is proclaiming? We know the gospel. We know the gospel is, is that Jesus took on flesh, came and lived among us was crucified on the cross at Calvary, was buried in the tomb, dead, rose again three days later, ascended to the Father, and now sits at the right hand of the Father and will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead. We know that's the gospel, but what's the gospel Jesus is offering here in this place? What, what's the good news? And the good news would be forgiveness for those who repent. The good news is, is, is that for those who repent, then you have life. You have forgiveness of sins. And so that's the gospel at that point that Jesus is proclaiming, but he's pointing to himself. He is the good news. He is the gospel. Then passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. And immediately, because it's Mark, and Mark does everything immediately, they left their nets and followed him. But here I believe they did actually do that. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother, John, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. I had a conversation with a friend last week about this very passage, and what, what, what would they have responded to? Well, in John's gospel in the first chapter, what we see is these guys who were disciples of John, and John the Baptist now, is pointing to Jesus and saying, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's the one who is, is pointing to Jesus as the fulfillment of John's gospel. 
the gospel that God is coming. And so these guys follow Jesus. They're walking along behind him. It's one of the most comical sounding scenes to me. They, they're walking behind him, and Jesus turns around, looks at him, and says, what are you looking for? And their response is, uh, where are you staying? Really? I mean, like, is Jesus, like, sort of the Yelp of his day, or or is he giving travel lodging uh, reviews here? No, they didn't know what else to say. And so they wanted to know where he was staying, and he invited them to come along, and they stayed with him that day. And so these guys already had some experience of Jesus. They had heard of Jesus, and they had spent some time with him. And so when he offered them a chance to become his disciples, it was a huge thing. And the thing to remember about this is is that, that you don't become a disciple in that tradition in your 30s, which is where we think these men are. And so they're, they're not children. Usually the way discipleship worked in in that time was is that everybody went to Hebrew school and the best students were the ones that were chosen by the rabbis to become their disciples. Paul would have been one of those. These guys, not so much. And sometimes you can see, you know, their thickness when Jesus says things, but he's calling them to believe things for which they have no predicate. And so these guys are the ones who were passed over by the best rabbis. And here Jesus now calls them in their 30s. They already have jobs. They probably have families. They certainly have, these guys have businesses. They're in business with their fathers. They're fishermen on the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus calls them, and immediately they respond because of their previous knowledge of him and their experience of him. But it's a wonderful thing to see them just abandon their nets immediately and go and follow after him. And so that's the best example that you're going to get of discipleship in the New Testament, frankly. I mean, Paul, as much as his understanding was, he didn't immediately catch it with Jesus. Jesus had to speak to him from heaven and call him to be his disciple. He had to strike him blind on the road to Damascus and speak to him from heaven. He offers, remember, the rich young ruler the opportunity to follow him, and he says no. He can't give up everything that he has. He offers other people, or other people want to attach themselves to him, but then they always say those other two words. But first, no. He has to be first because it's the story that he tells about the kingdom. You know, all the parables that he tell about the kingdom is, is is that you find something of surpassing worth and you give up everything immediately to go and find that thing. And so that's the call. The call is to be a disciple. And Jesus then teaches them leads them further. And what they learn eventually at the resurrection is, oh my gosh, God himself called us to be his disciples. As he does you. You're called to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, not a disciple of any other man. That's the point of that psalm. You're called to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. And so you have been offered by God to come and follow him, to work with him, to watch him work to learn of him, to love him, and to be loved by him. That's who you are. But there's another call to us as well. And so what does that call look like? And that's kind of the point of the um, the epistle today, which is a very short epistle. It's just 1 Corinthians 7, verses 29 to 31. And, and Jesus speaks here of the time having been fulfilled in, in the gospel and in this epistle. Paul says, this is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. So Paul is saying, you know, the time is coming to an end. 
and it is for all of us, and it always has been. Ever since Jesus rose to the Father, time has been short. You know, the bishop um, and my mentor, Chuck Murphy, who sort of founded the uh, the, the movement that, that came out of the Episcopal Church uh, went a long time ago now, 20 years ago, used to say, time is short, hell is hot, and the stakes are high. And that's what Paul's saying here. The, this is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who had wives live as though they had none, those who mourn as though they were not mourning, those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealing with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. So Paul's saying the call, y'all, is to fix your eyes on that which is not passing away. Fix your eyes on the kingdom of God and, and live your life in this world in such a way that, that it doesn't drag you down and cause you problems. Keep your eyes fixed on him. There's a collect that we pray um, later, a little later in the year, and, and it talks about that that we hold on to things eternal. That we we understand the way to deal with this world uh, in such a way that we lose not the eternal things. It's a powerful thing. It's a reminder that this world is not our home, which is what the writer of Hebrews tells us as well. And it's what the Jesus <laughs> says as well. He reminds us that we're not to grasp things in this world and hold on to those things too tightly. And we're going to see some of that in an odd way in the lesson that I really want to focus the most on today, and I want to focus on it for a couple of reasons. One is I believe that it's it's a wonderful paradigm, and it speaks to us today, it should speak to us today at least, in such a way that, that we begin to rethink some of our attitudes, I believe, towards those who differ from us, who, who oppose us, who we disagree with. And, and it's a way of understanding things and understanding our place in the world and understanding other people's place in the world and reminding ourselves of of this reality that this world is passing away and therefore we ought to hold it in such a way that that we recognize that and we ought not to let our temporal disagreements become a stumbling block to us and that we become salt and light to the world again. And so that passage is, is going to be Jonah. It's the first ten verses of chapter three in Jonah. And I have a special affinity for the book of Jonah, and it comes from this whole call and response thing. I was going through a difficult time about 30 years ago. Yeah, about 30 years ago. Um, struggling financially because I had become an expert witness in fraud and business um, valuation-related issues. And we had a... Uh, uh, managing partner of the firm that I was in, a very small firm, a boutique firm. We did primarily work for the FDIC and the RTC. Well, it, it happened that the managing partner defrauded the federal government. And I ended up helping unravel that fraud, and he went to prison for it. Well, when you're a fraud examiner, it's not a good resume builder for your firm that your previous managing partner actually defrauded your main client. And so I, I was in the process of trying to figure out how to rebuild a life and rebuild a career. 
because of what this man did. And I was happy to help the government in what I did, but at the same time, it was ruining my own future and my own career. But at the same time, God was calling me. And mostly what I was doing was crying out to him, praying that he would help me somehow to rebuild this business, that we could figure out some way of avoiding that that question and answer at the beginning of the vetting process whenever you're an expert. There's no great way around it, though. And so I was really struggling, and I started, I was coming back to the Lord. The Lord was really calling me at that time, and I got connected with a good friend, and we, we were reading books back and forth with one another, and I was comparing myself frequently to Job during that time because I was watching everything slip through my grasp. So he picked a book, gave it to me, and said, check it out. I, I gave you an inscription, and it says to Jonah. And I'm looking at that, and I'm thinking, what the heck? Why would you do that? He said, that's who you talk about all the time. And I was devastated <laughs> that he didn't pay any attention to me about this, obviously. And so later, took it home and began to, just in prayer, not praying about that, but the Lord showed me that I was a lot more like Jonah than I was Job. That, in fact, I had run from a call on my life when I was about... 20, 21 years old. I just didn't want to do that. I wanted to go and do something that made more money. And so here I went. I realized that I was actually the rich young ruler. I was far less like Job than I was the rich young ruler. I was making too much money and I wouldn't go to seminary. I wouldn't, even at that point, I still had the hope of, of making enough money that, that maybe what I could do is I could get enough money. If I worked about five more years, we could put away a ridiculous amount of money and then I could go to seminary in ease and I could let that money we could coast on that the rest of our lives when we went into ministry and the Lord said I don't want you coasting on any of that stuff I want you to follow me no matter what the cost so Jonah I have a special affinity for Jonah and so here we go we're going to read this chapter together. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. And so, yeah, Jonah, this was the second time Jonah had been called. And God told him he had a message for him to give that time. But this one's different, because after God tells him, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. And that sounds wonderful and noble, and it sounds like Jonah might be a good guy. Except for Jonah's had to go through his own hell in order to get to that place. And the reason he went through the hell was the same reason that, that John Green went through hell, and that is because the first time God called him, he said, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah, <laughs> this goes back and forth all through this chapter, but Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. And so he goes there, and then in verse 4 of chapter 1, But the Lord, remember that, but Jonah, but the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and Jonah was on a boat, a mighty tempest on the sea, so the ship threatened to break up, and the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah <laughs> had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. And so here we go, and so we go through this whole series of things with Jonah where uh, the 
he confesses the Lord. The, 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 they throw him into the sea. They don't want to do it because it's murder and they don't want to do this. And so they ultimately, the, they pray to the Lord. They make sacrifices to the Lord and they worship the Lord because of Jonah and the witness of Jonah that when they throw him in the sea, the storm stops. So he was the problem all along. And then we get him into the great fish and then he gets vomited on dry land and after the fish vomits him up onto dry land is when this call comes again to Jonah and this time it says so Jonah arose that's where he is he's been vomited up onto the land when the call comes so Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord so finally now Nineveh is an exceedingly great city three days journey in breadth it means it took three days to walk all the way across the city of Nineveh, it was so great. Jonah began to go into the city, went a day's journey, and then he called out, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. You know, a lot of people, a lot of commentators say he said a lot more than that. I don't know. I'm not convinced of that at all. And the reason I say that is because it seems to me that Jonah was likely to do the very least he could possibly do to fulfill the word of the Lord. And so I don't know that he preached some great sermon against Nineveh and explained too much to him. I'm guessing he probably did something like that. I'm going to do a study on the book of Jonah probably starting in February um, because there's a lot there and, and I, I really want to do this. But, but I have reasons and there are reasons to believe, in fact, that the Assyrians would have heard this prophet from another place and so here what they what they're told is is that after he gives this short little message the people of Nineveh believed God just like the sailors believed God on the ship before that and the people called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least the word reached the king of Nineveh and he arose from his throne removed his robe covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. There's only one other person in all of Scripture who's described as sitting in ashes, and that's Jonah. I'm not Jonah, Job, sorry. It's Job, and it's after the sores come on Job, and he, he it says he has a, a potsherd with him, so you know, a piece of a broken pot, and he's sitting there scraping his sores, and he's sitting in the ashes. I mean, that's the kind of abject humility and and pain that's involved in this so it's from the ground up though did you see that it went from the people to the king the people made a witness to the king of Nineveh the people began this fast and it goes upstream it was a grassroots thing it goes up to the king it came became known to him and and he believed Jonah's message that I believe Jonah had no intention of striking a responsive chord. And then it says the king issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh. Listen to this. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them come out mightily to God. Call out mightily to God. Do you see that? I mean, it's everything involved here. Literally, everything in the land, everything in Nineveh, man and beast, flock and herd, are to fast. At a complete fast, not even drinking water. They're all going to be covered in sackcloth. 
So the farmers all have to go out and they have to put sackcloth on their beasts. It's a decree from the king and it's got to be obeyed. That's some serious repentance. Some serious repentance that maybe we need to do ourselves as Americans. And then the king goes further and says, let everyone turn from his evil ways and the violence that's in his hand. Who knows? God may turn and relent from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. Evil ways and the violence that's in his hands. This is all stuff that God has said to, to his own people over time. It's also that evil ways and the violence thing. That goes back to the time of Noah. When God destroyed the entire world. Including all the animals. Except for those that were taken into the ark. Same again, Sodom and Gomorrah. So, God's word strikes the people of Nineveh through this prophet, Jonah, who's not even a reluctant prophet. I mean, he had to go through an incredible ordeal just to come to the point where he would even obey the word of God because he hated the Ninevites so much. They were known to be evil. They were known to be cruel and violent people. When they took over a land, they would frequently use hooks through the noses of the people and drag them from their own land. They were known to be incredibly cruel. And so God takes these people and they call for a fast and call for repentance. And God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, and he relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. It's funny, because in a few weeks, we're going to be calling for a fast ourselves. We're going to be calling for a fast that's called Lent, and we're going to use some words from Joel. And those words from Joel sound an awful lot like what the king here says. Listen to this from Joel 2, 12 to 14. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he's gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Who knows whether or not he will turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him. Joel proclaimed that message to God's wayward people. We proclaim that message to God's wayward people when we begin that season of Lent. And here, God did relent. It's just like He relented in Exodus 32 of what He was going to do with the people, to the people over the episode with the golden calf and that part of Joel that says He is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. That's how God revealed Himself to His people. That's how he reveals himself to us in the cross of Jesus Christ. And he calls us still to repent, but we repent knowing the depth of his forgiveness and the suffering and the love of his son on the cross. He loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that all, whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Let me give you a quick heads up end of the story, rest of the story. I believe Jonah wrote the book of Jonah. I believe he's the only one who could have written it. And I believe that he wrote it seeing his own foibles, seeing who he was, and, and 
making an example of himself as one who hated people so much that he wouldn't tell them about God. We live in a time when there's a lot of hate in America. And I believe that we have to be those people who see that in our own selves and repent of that. I mean, Jonah, after this, right, God relents. Jonah sits outside the city angrily waiting for them to return to their evil ways. That's how much he hated them. Let me tell you the rest of the story of Jonah, though. The rest of the story of Jonah is Jonah didn't just wait there a few days. The end of the story is not the plant that's in chapter 4 that we'll talk about in the series I'm going to do. No, that's not how long Jonah waited. Do you know how long Jonah waited? Jonah waited forever. Jonah's tomb was destroyed several years ago by ISIS because ISIS are, were, were, are whatever they are. They're iconoclasts. They hate images, shrines, all that kind of stuff just like so many did after the Reformation when they smashed the icons and tore up much of the architectural iconography and um, rude screens, all kinds of other things that they believed were Romish inventions that kept the people from the simple worship of God. And so the iconoclasts went into many, many churches, particularly in England, are the ones I know about, and they smashed all these things that they thought were wrong and didn't belong there. Well, that's who what ISIS was as far as their um, religious understanding was. They were iconoclasts, and they went in and smashed everything. And one of the things that they smashed, in fact, one of the first things that they smashed, because it was such a great shrine place, was a temple outside Mosul, which is just outside Babylon, or Nineveh, I'm sorry. And they smashed that because it was a shrine that was the tomb of Jonah. Many Muslims went to that place because they saw Jonah as the one who brought knowledge of God to that place. So while Jonah may have begun by hating the Ninevites, there was obviously something about the Ninevites that attracted Jonah as well, something about the way God loved them too. And so he ended up staying there the rest of his life. His tomb was there in Nineveh this reluctant prophet to share the good news of God with those with whom he had disagreed. It's a word for us. The call can be to go to people that you don't want to go to. Well, Jesus came into a world that did violence against him and hated him because of his great love. He didn't let that hatred, the animosity, deter him from coming into this world and persevering to the very end. Let us be the same. Let us have also the mind of Christ that we would have that idea in our minds, that, that our we, we would not covet a call that's not our own. We would follow him into those dark and difficult places. You've been listening to Faith Seeking Understanding. John Green, it was a pleasure being with you this week, and I look forward to seeing you again next week. 